from noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at about three, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to Jesus to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Then Jesus cried out with a loud voice, breathed his last. A film, several years old now, still sticks in my memory. It's set in the period just before and just after World War II. It starts in a grand country house. There are two daughters, Cecilia, 19, and Bryony, 14. The third character is young Robbie. His family are workers on the estate. He's very bright, however, and he's got a place at university. He's in love with Cecilia, but Bryony is also in love with him and passionately jealous of her sister. On an impulse of revenge, Bryony claims falsely to have seen Robbie molesting another child. He's tried, found guilty, and sent to prison. The film then moves on to 1940. The setting is now Dunkirk. Cecilia is a nurse and Robbie, freed from prison on condition that he fights in the front line, is a private soldier. Bryony now realize, realize the enormity of what she has done. But the others die. She's trying to make amends for the terrible wrong and has joined up into the forces herself. The film ends by leaping forward to the present. Old Bryony talks about the past, her sadness and how she tried to make amends. She describes her actions as atonement, and that's the title of the film. Christians use that word too, at one month. It speaks of repair, of bringing broken things together again. Now, although that film, Atonement, is a fine film, and Bryony is filled with deep sadness and gives heroic service at Dunkirk, nothing's really changed. And that's the heart of the difference. Jesus' death was a true atonement. It changed things. Christians believe a real man died, a horrible, cruel death that day. But also that the Son of God died too. This fourth word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are words of despair, and dereliction, the most terrible words in the whole Bible. 
they can only mean that Jesus felt at that moment that his heavenly father had abandoned him. But it was at that very moment when Jesus entered into the very depths of human suffering that God was building a new humanity. By his stripes we are healed. This was real atonement, at one moment. This was suffering love at full strength, and it changed the landscape of the Christian story. This is the very heart of our Christian faith, a God who turns all worldly understanding of power upside down. Christian writers have tried to explain just how atonement works, and much disagreement and conflict has been the result, and that continues today. But no one explanation can carry the weight of the full truth for we are in the presence of great mystery. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Perhaps we are closest to the mystery as we stand at the foot of the cross today and just gaze. When God seemed most absent, he was most present. What a paradox. If that is true on the cross, Please God, it can be true for all our lesser Calvaries today. Jesus knew that all was now finished. He said, in order to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Some people say that it was the level of suffering that Jesus suffered on the cross that in some way saved us. And it worked, the theory goes on, because the pain Jesus suffered was the worst that any human being had ever undergone. You only have to think for a minute, don't you, to realize that is just not true. Think of the daily torture that brings prisoners to within an inch of their deaths over and over again. Think of the extended agony that so many endure in terminal illness or used to before the coming of modern medicine. It wasn't the level of pain by which we judge the cross. No, it's who that man was that counts, not the pain level. And of course, throughout this service too, we must have at least part of our minds aware that the empty tomb is only now two days away. Nevertheless, there was terrible suffering. And it's in St. John's Gospel that we find this fifth word, I am thirsty. How strange that the one who said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst again. How strange that he cannot give it until he has himself once again suffered thirst, as he did at the well of Sychar and asked that Samaritan woman for a drink. We sing the hymn, once only, once for all, his precious life he gave. And we speak at the Eucharist of Jesus, one perfect sacrifice. Calvary, of course, happened once. 
it could never be repeated. The cross is empty. He rose again. And yet, and yet, if the cross shows us what God was like in 33 AD, God hasn't changed in the meantime. There is a sense then, and no Christian thinker dares say how, in which he is still there, he still suffers. One great Christian writer said that God is like a great foreign tree trunk. If you soar up a tree trunk into logs, wherever you choose to soar, the pattern of rings in the cross section is always the same. God is like that. He does not change. He is totally consistent. If God cried out, I thirst, on Good Friday, there is a sense in which he is crying out still in our suffering, sinful world. I thirst still today. And today is a good day for each of us to turn away from sin and to follow Christ, as was promised at our baptism. And beyond our personal sinfulness, there are, aren't there, the terrible facts of world hunger, conflict, inequality, crisis in the environment, None of us can stand aside from all this. We are all, all caught up in it, and it is strangling our common humanity. We are still causing Jesus to cry, I thirst. And he's thirsty too, surely, in the second sense of that word. There is the thirst too that comes, doesn't it, from a deep longing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. My soul is a thirst, even for the living God. And Jesus is thirsty in that way too. His heart of love must surely long for all his children. I don't mean just Christians. I mean the whole human race, the whole creation even. Paul speaks of the whole creation groaning in travail, waiting in hope for the glorious revealing of the children of God. Our God longs for true human flourishing. I thirst. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon while the sunless light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly, this man was innocent. In this third hour, both together and as individuals, we're trying to use the said prayers, the hymns, the meditation, the silence, 
to stand in some very limited but still very real way with Jesus at the foot of the cross and then to be moved and changed by what we hear and see. And so we now come to that last word from the cross, Jesus' very last words before he died, as recorded in St. John, St. Luke's Gospel. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The doubts, the questions, the pain, the despair, that final piece of personal business with John and Mary, all this is now over. All that is left now, a few last words of trust in his heavenly Father. The death was real. Christians are 100% clear about this. It is in fact almost the one hard historical fact about Jesus that we can be absolutely and simply sure of because it's the only evidence that we've got outside the Gospels. Other authors from the same period who are not Christians knew about a Jewish teacher who had been crucified and that his name was Jesus of Nazareth and they mentioned him in their books. We need to recognize that our Muslim friends and neighbors do not believe that he died. For them, Jesus is the second greatest human being ever to have lived, the second prophet after Muhammad. They are firm believers in the virgin birth and in the, in the ascension of Jesus into heaven. But they believe that the story of the crucifixion is a dreadful lie. God would never allow this great prophet to be humiliated and to suffer in this way. We need to be aware of this crucial difference when we are talking with our Muslim friends, with whom now at St Albans, wonderfully, we have so much in common. We need to be aware of what offence the idea of the cross causes Muslims. And we need to be clear why the cross is so important to us when we're asked about this. It took the early Christians a very long time to realize this. At first, they thought that Friday was certainly not a good Friday, not a good Friday at all, but a terrible disaster that was miraculously reversed on Easter day. That wasn't surprising. What sort of national saviour, one who would lead the Jews to freedom from their Roman oppressors, what sort of Messiah would hang on a cross? Only very slowly did they get to the point where St John was able to report in his Gospel Jesus' words, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people to me. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people to me. In other words, the power, the attraction of God's self-giving love was to be shown most fully in the man hanging on a cross. It's a paradox I'm still wrestling with, and I guess all of us here today are wrestling too. 
May God bring us nearer to the love within that paradox today and change us into his likeness for our healing and the healing of his beautiful suffering world. This little story by an Indian Christian has always said a lot to me at the cusp between the loss of Good Friday and just beginning to anticipate the joy of Easter. Once upon a time, two boys were conceived. Weeks passed and the twins developed. As their awareness grew, they laughed for joy. Isn't it great that we've been conceived? Isn't it great to be alive? Together, the twins explored their world. When they discovered their mother's cord that gave them life, they sang for joy. How great our mother's love is that she shared her own life with us. As the weeks stretched into months, the twins noticed how much each was changing. What does it mean, one said? It means that our stay in this world is coming to an end, said the other. But I don't want to go, said one. I want to stay here always. We have no choice, said the other. But maybe there is life after, death, after birth. But how can that be, responded one. We will shed our life cord, and how can life be possible without it? Besides, we have seen evidence that others were here before us, and none of them has returned to tell us that there is life after birth. No, this is the end. Maybe there's no mother after all. But there has to be, protested the other. How else did we get here? How do we remain alive? Have you seen our mother, said one? Maybe she only lives in our minds. Maybe we have to give her up because the idea makes us feel so good. And so the last days in the womb were filled with deep questioning and fear. And finally, the moment of birth arrived. When the twins had passed from their world, they opened their eyes and cried for joy, for what they saw exceeded their fondest dreams. That is birth and that is death.